in a magazine or book. There's books for him and books for her and books for you and me. You'll find good books for everyone at your library. What's up, y'all? Welcome to Lauren's Library. I'm your host, Bunquisha. No, I'm playing. I'm your host, Lauren, um, and I am super excited that you guys decided to join me today. You know, now that you're here, you can't turn it off, okay? But <laughs> go ahead and get comfortable. Grab something to drink. Uh, grab a nice seat. If you're driving, grab the steering wheel because I will not be held responsible for your accidents. And get ready because we have a lot to go over. In today's episode, we have The Fault in Our Stars. Not that actual story but the story that I wanted to share with you is about a woman who related to the faults in our stars and I'll tell you how so the story starts with a TikTok posted by John Green that said that his book the faults in our stars is 11 years old and then a woman with the username Yaya Campin I think her name is actually Janine um so I'm just gonna call her that if it's not her name oops don't sue me but she stitched his video and talked about how the book and the movie changed her life which, you know, when you first hear that, sounds like the potential for a really sweet story, right? No, no. The entire video took a sharp left very quickly. But before we get into that, a quick backtrack for those of you that are unfamiliar with this book and its subsequent movie. Um, the Fault in Our Stars is a young adult novel about two kids who meet in a cancer kid support group and fall in love. Uh, the story's main character's name is Hazel. She's a young girl with terminal cancer. I can't remember what kind it was. I think maybe it was leukemia, but she had cancer and she was supposed, well, she was expected to die soon, but through some kind of medical miracle, she got a few more years and she was cool with that. So she went to that support group and she met Augustus who had bone cancer, met him, they fell in love. So back to the video, Yaya Campin, AKA Janine, tells us that over 10 years ago, she met a woman with terminal bone cancer. They didn't date for very long, Literally, it was like a month, I think. Maybe not even that. And at the time, she had no idea about the book. The book came out, I want to say, in like 2012, I want to say. Yeah, because that would be 11 years. Do math, Lauren. So yeah, it came out in 2012. She didn't know anything about it because she didn't discover it until 2014 when she was watching the movie with her wife and was like, uh, wait a minute, why does this seem so familiar, right? So it turns out her wife actually copy and pasted the entire book into her own life and was like, yeah, this is my story now. <laughs> yeah, you heard that right. She basically told her uh, wife, Yaya Campin's wife told her that she had terminal bone cancer and was gonna die in two months. She had two months left to live. She had no idea that this book existed until they were watching the movie. And then watching the movie, she went, it inspired her to go get the book and read it. And then she was saying that some of the phrases in the book, like for example, when Augustus says, that he went to get a PET scan after having a pain in his hip and the um, x-ray, whatever it is, lit up like a Christmas tree. Apparently, Janine's wife used that entire phrase and didn't even bother to change it. And I just wanna know, like, if you're gonna steal someone's story and make it yours, basically tell everybody that it's your life, why would you then go and watch the movie? Like, I would avoid that movie like the plague because it feels like she kind of just gave her the smoking gun. Like, hey, you didn't know this, but I'm lying to you and here is how. But I mean, I guess when you think about it, maybe she wanted to get caught because 
she told the girl that she had two months left to live. And, you know, when two months passes and then Janine's looking at her like, um, what you still doing here? Then it's going to get kind of awkward. So I guess, you know, to keep from having to disappear and get new social security cards, passports, names, and all that other illegal stuff. She was just like, hey, I'm lying to you. Here you go. <laughs> so upon further research, Janine discovered that her wife did not have terminal bone cancer at all. She actually had a condition that's called Munchausen. And some of you may be familiar with that, but if you're not, it is a condition where uh, someone falsifies or basically exaggerates physical symptoms, meaning they pretend to be sick when they're not. Another version of that, which is usually talked about more often, is Munchausen by proxy, especially in stories concerning a mother and their child or a caretaker and their patient, some, something, some version of that. In that case, the person makes someone else sick or tries to fake the symptoms for the other person. Sometimes they do it for sympathy, sometimes it's for financial gain. But a good example of a Munchausen by proxy syndrome um, story would be the Gypsy Rose Blanchard story. There's a series of it on Hulu if you want to take a look at that. And one of my favorite true crime podcast was not really a podcast, it's a YouTube video. One of my favorite true crime YouTubers named Eleanor Neal does a story on the serial killer nurse or the nightmare nurse as she was referred to. That has a bit of Munchausen by proxy and just regular Munchausen if you want to take a look at that. But the moral of this entire story with Yaya Campin and her her wife is don't marry someone you've only known for two seconds. I feel like that should be common sense but you know you never know. But I feel like deep down, like I mentioned earlier, the wife wanted to get caught. Because if you take an entire story into your own life and you didn't even bother to give it a little tweak, you didn't want to add any like extra details to make it more believable. You just took the whole story and decided to make it yours. Don't let the person you're lying to watch the movie or read the book. Okay? I just... it. <laughs> I don't even know what else to say about that, but it's a wild story. And speaking of wild stories, the next thing I wanted to talk about was a book that seems to be causing quite a bit of controversy. I found this on TikTok too, because apparently TikTok is a gold mine for information. The other day, well not even the other day, it was a couple of weeks ago, I was on the internet at work. I had done all my work before you judge me. Okay, judge your mama, don't judge me. Okay, especially if my boss is listening to this. I was on the internet and I saw a story about this girl named Cecilia Rabes. I don't even know if that's how you pronounce her last name, but she is releasing a debut novel in June. And before I start to, to tear into this book, unfortunately, congrats to you, Cecilia, for releasing a book. That's no easy feat. So good for you. But on the same token, I feel like maybe this should not have been a debut. Maybe we should have kept this one in the drafts. Hmm. Maybe, maybe we should try again. Hmm. Maybe we should rethink it. Maybe. So the book itself is called Everything's Fine. And honestly, it's not fine if you really want my humble opinion, but we'll get into that. I'm going to read the description for you guys so you can see what you're getting yourselves into by listening to this conversation. So the description or the, the blurb or the pulled quote for this book is as such. Jess and Josh are polar opposites. She's black, he's white, she's liberal, he's conservative, whose mutual hatred transforms into mutual attraction and love in this hilarious thought-provoking story about whether or not love can truly trump all. Whew. So Cecilia Rabus, 
right? She's a woman in data science, black woman in data science, actually. And when I first heard about the book, I was kind of nervous, but I was, you know, I wanted to support. And, you know, I was curious because everyone seemed to be getting so upset about it. Everyone was all bent out of shape about this book. I had no idea why, so I wanted to read it before I made any opinions because I didn't want to be out here looking dumb, talking about something I didn't know nothing about. Yeah. So after having finished the book, finally, because it took a lot of effort not to DNF it, okay? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this book. I won't share them all because then we'll be here for like three hours and I know y'all don't want to listen to me ramble for that long, but there are a few points I wanted to make. The rest of my points, because I do go into deeper detail, I do go into depth about my opinions on this story. I do it on my blog, thebookiebabe.com, and that's bookie with a Y. Um, by the time this podcast is released, I will have posted the review on my Instagram, so you can check a little bit of it out there, or on Goodreads. There are multiple places for you to go and read my the vitriol concerning this book, but <laughs> we're only going to go into a little bit of it here. So let's jump in. At its core, this book is about a black woman that's navigating through a white world, trying to keep and in some, in some instances find her voice. And she had very little black influence in her life. Very little. Depressingly little. Like her mother had died when she was young. She had no black friends whatsoever. She was in a, in a job where she was the only black person around. Her and her dad didn't really see each other that often. Literally every black influence that she could have possibly had in her life was removed. And before I really got into it, I related to that. Because I've also been in a situation where I was the only black person in the room. I understand what it's like to desperately want to fit in and be accepted by people that don't look like you and people that don't like you, but they tolerate you because you're quote unquote, one of the good ones. If we'd have kept it there, I would have been vibing super heavy with this book and I would have tried to defend it. And I'd have been like, no, this is actually what she meant. And then launch into a whole spiel that nobody asked for about the true meaning behind everything's fine. But that is not where we stopped. No, 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 no. She had to shove romance in where it didn't fit. Like literally it's like trying to stick a square peg into a round hole or a round hole into a square, whatever you want to say, it did not fit. Trying to stick a puzzle piece from a different puzzle in where it does not belong. She'd have kept the romance out of it. This would have been a good story with a really deep and profound lesson. But now that since we're sticking the romance in, you kind of ruin it. Josh, he honestly seemed like a caricature of a wealthy white man you know, refused to eat anything but salads, was wound up so tight that if he sneezed, he'd probably explode. And he was just entitled and selfish and, and, and racist. <laughs> There's no, really no other way to put it. He was racist, flat out racist. And she was throwing the panties at this man. He belittled, he gaslit, he invalidated her at every turn in this entire story. And you know, he even went as far as to convince her to quit her job at Goldman Sachs, which didn't honestly didn't take too much convincing because it was a very toxic environment. He convinced her to quit her job there and to come work for him. And then in the end ended up reprimanding her for not being able to fit in with the quote unquote culture of the workplace, which for those of you that don't know, that means you're too black in a white space. That's issue number one. Every time she tried to explain her reasonings for things, or her thought processes behind a decision or a feeling, he would low-key pat her on the head and call her a cute or like say she was like a feral bunny, which is infuriating, also invalidating, whatever you want to call it, that's what it is. <laughs> and 
I mean, I just, I could never, I could never pinpoint what it was about this man that made this girl want to give him the visage because the romance was forced. Like it made it incredibly hard to stomach. She kept fighting with herself internally about whether or not this was a good decision. She made herself sick by eating strawberries because she couldn't be bothered to remind him because she had told him before. She couldn't be bothered to remind him that she was allergic. And so she ate the strawberries because he wanted to eat them and ended up putting herself in the hospital because of that. He acted embarrassed to be seen with her in public unless he was trying to sexualize her in some way. So he was fine being seen with her in public if they were like sticking their tongues down each other's throat. But when it came to having an actual conversation or just being in the room with her, he couldn't be bothered to do it. And overall, this book was incredibly upsetting. And it makes me feel led to mention, you know, cause apparently I'm, I'm, I'm your dating coach now too. But it makes me feel compelled to mention that if you're dating someone that looks down on your race looks down on you as a person, makes egregious assumptions about you based on your skin color and stereotypes, whatever, then baby, get out of there. Get out of there. All this peen in the world and you chasing after the one that didn't even want you. Girl, do better. It's giving self-hatred. It's giving masochism. Do better. Do better. Okay. So yeah, if you can't tell, I'm not, I'm not vibing with this book. I get the lesson that it was trying to teach, but the romance kind of ruined that. And it just makes me wonder like if this book was necessary. Like, did we need this? Did, I, I don't know. I can't even, I can't even like, like respond to that because yo, guys, he, in their first meeting, he tells her that not only do black people have low IQs and are just poor all the time. Um, he says to her that she cannot articulate her point on affirmative action in an objective manner because he assumes that she's a direct beneficiary of it. And I just want to let you know, we finna fight if you say that to me. So I was confused. I was perplexed. I was flummoxed when he said this to her and she was just like, oh, he's so hot. Like, girl, it, no, what are we doing? I am confusion. I, I was pissed off. I was angry. I kept wanting to throw my phone at the wall, but I can't because this phone is expensive and I'm not getting another one. All in all, I just want to ask, did we need this? Was this necessary? Because I feel like the answer with that to that should be no. And as a matter of fact, before I started reading, I was like 10 pages in and then I, I went ahead and tried to like reach out to the author on Instagram for a possible interview. Cause I was like, I need to understand where her thought processes were. I need to understand what the reason was. But then as I kept reading, and I kept getting pissed off. I realized that I probably could not have a discussion with her about this book without getting pissed off and upset. And I wasn't about to, you know, berate and belittle and, and, and well, I wasn't gonna do that anyway, but I wasn't about to fuss at someone about a book that they took the time to write. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we should be able to write the books that we wanna write. But I didn't think it would be a good idea to have her up here and then it'd be like an argument. Cause it's this drama that we don't need. So I went ahead and unsent that message. <laughs> I backtracked, I did not say it with jest because I'm like, look, for the good of the world, let's not do that. So I unsent that message. I no longer wanna have this interview. I'll just wonder from a distance. There's a lot of foolishness going on. <laughs> And I'm gonna do my best to be able to bring you some foolishness at least every week. Once a week on Fridays, expect to sit with me and talk about the ridiculousness that is going on in this world, especially in the book community. I keep saying, y'all dramatic. Why are we so dramatic, guys? What's going on? So now that we've got all that out of the way, let's go to my favorite section. 
This section is called Storytime. And for the first story ever on Lawrence Library Podcast, it's going to be one that was written by me and it will be read by me. Um, it's called Bruno. I actually thought of it back when Encanto first came out and it was super popular and everyone was singing, you know, we don't talk about Bruno. And I was listening to that song for the 50 millionth time in one day and it hit me. I was like, hey, why don't we talk about Bruno? So that's where the idea for this story came. I hope you guys enjoy it. Or, you know, if you don't, just pretend you do. This room they stuck me in was empty and lifeless and cold. The only thing in here besides me was an old metal table and a dingy chair. There was a camera in the highest corner of the wall behind me and a mirror that took over the entire space to my left. I guess the interrogation rooms they use in movies were pretty accurate. If only this were a movie and not real life. The linoleum floor was hard and uncomfortable beneath my slippered feet. They didn't even give me time to change before they snatched me up and stuck me in here. I wanted to cry, but so much of my tears had already been spent at the scene of the crime. I wasn't sure I had any tears left. The cold, hard surface of the metal table did nothing to calm my nerves. I pressed my palms against it, desperate to cease the trembling. A thin layer of sweat coated my forehead and my upper lip, but I resisted the urge to wipe it away. I wanted to keep as still as possible, give them nothing. They were watching me, and if I appeared nervous, which I absolutely was, it would make me look guilty, and I couldn't go down for this. I just couldn't. I glanced down at the wedding dress I still wore. The once pure white lace was stained crimson with blood, their blood, everyone's blood. So much blood. I blinked away the memory and rested my forehead against my fingertips. I had been sitting here for what felt like hours, but judging from the small clock in the corner by the door, it had only been about 45 minutes. I felt foolish sitting at this table with this big fluffy wedding dress on, but they wouldn't allow me to change my clothes just yet. They still needed to collect evidence. Months ago, a ball gown had seemed like a good idea. But at the time, I hadn't anticipated sitting in an interrogation room afterwards, waiting to be accused of a crime I didn't commit. I was supposed to be deliriously happy, enjoying my first dance with my husband, right now. But instead, I was here, in a police apartment, covered in blood and sweat and dirt. I had rented this dress and declined the insurance on it. Who could have anticipated that all of this would happen to it? There was no way I was getting my deposit back on it now. I absentmindedly touched the lace on the skirt of the dress really had been stunning. I couldn't remember if the photographer had been in the heap of bodies. If he was, I'd never get pictures of this beautiful dress before the carnage. The pictures should be the least of my worries in this moment, but the deafening silence of this room made my mind wander. The sound of the door opening made me jump. The handcuff on my wrist clanged against the leg of the table. Two officers walked in. One was tall, with kind eyes and a mustache that made him look like Mario from that video game. And the other was a stout woman with braids and a serious expression. Is this good cop, bad cop? I had resisted the urge to smile at the sight of them together. I thought they only did that in movies. I straightened my posture as much as I could while being handcuffed to the table in front of me, refusing to show how defeated I felt, even though I'm sure they probably already saw it from the other side of this mirror. So... Miss Gillette, do you want to tell me what happened? Stout woman officer asked. Her nameplate on her shoulder read Officer Hardy. She stood in the far corner of the room with her back pressed against the wall. 
almost as if she wanted to be as far away from me as possible while still being in the room. The kind-eyed officer, his name tag read Detective Halberg, pulled out a chair at the table and sat across from me. I almost laughed out loud at how obvious this whole thing seemed. If my life hadn't been just destroyed, I probably would have been cracking up at the absurdity of this situation. Me, wearing an expensive and extravagant wedding dress covered in blood, and two cops with me, one looking like she can't get far enough away, and the other one looking like he would gather me up in his arms and hug me if it was allowed. Well, you came to what was supposed to be my wedding, obviously. I waved my free hand toward the destroyed dress I was wearing. Instead, it was a bloodbath. Everyone but me is dead. My fiancé, his parents, his grandparents. The only person on my side of the family that was invited was my mama. She was all the family I had left, and... She's dead now, too. My mind flashed back to seeing her mangled body laying in a heap outside the door of the dressing room. Her arms were outstretched as if she was trying to get into the room and protect me. Or maybe she was just looking for somewhere to hide. I don't even know anymore. A frozen look of terror on her face is going to haunt me for the rest of my days. Detective Hallberg placed a reassuring hand on the table in my direction. We were sitting too far apart for him to be able to touch me, but I could tell he wanted to. The music had stopped, and... I had heard screaming, so I came out from where I was getting dressed, and I saw everyone dead. He continued. I saw my mama first. She was right outside the door. There was blood absolutely everywhere. I was, I was holding my fiancé, trying to see if he was still alive, but he had his throat slashed. His eyes were still open in the most tormented expression I had ever seen. And I looked up and saw my twin brother, Bruno. He was watching me from the corner of the room near the window, and he was covered head to toe, including the knife he was holding in the blood of my loved ones. He was getting ready to attack, but then we heard the sirens. He dropped the knife and ran. I blinked back the tears, threatening to slip down my face. He, he stepped on my father-in-law's chest as he ran out. I heard the crack of his ribs. It, there, there was so much blood. I stopped talking long enough to fight back the nausea swelling in the pit of my stomach. I felt like I was rambling, offering way more information than they needed or even cared to learn, but I had to get it out. I had to talk about what I saw. The images would stick with me forever. Officer Hardy cleared her throat and narrowed her eyes at me. Ma'am, when we arrived on the scene, you were the only one still alive, and the weapon was in your hand. I sighed. The disbelief was all over her face. I didn't expect them to believe me when I mentioned Bruno. I mean, no one ever did, but I don't know why I was holding the knife. I think in the shock of everything going on when Bruno dropped it, I instinctively grabbed for it. I mean, I didn't know what he was planning. Maybe he would come back with the gun and finish me off. I needed some type of protection. Detective Hardy opened the file that he had been holding. We ran a quick background check on you after you told the officers at the scene that this was your twin brother. And it says that in your file, the only twin you had died during childbirth. There was no record of Bruno Gillette anywhere. I sighed again, not at all surprised with that response. They wouldn't find a record of him, no matter how hard they looked. There weren't any to find. You're not gonna find a record of him anywhere. My mother had us both in a home birth, and she kept him hidden. Never bothered to even have his birth registered, which is why this happened. He was seeking revenge. The two officers exchanged a glance and looked at me skeptically. I can tell you the story, but you might want to sit. It'll, it'll take a minute. Officer Hardy grabbed a chair, pulled it toward her, and sat down, making sure to keep her distance from me. I already knew they would most likely think I was crazy after hearing this story, but I had to try. They seemed to be humoring me in the moment. I refused to go down for Bruno's crimes. I took a deep, shaky breath and looked at the officers, debating on how far back into my sordid past that I should go. I couldn't believe I was actually going to admit this to someone after hiding him from the world for so long. In the back of my mind, 
I knew the way my mama treated Bruno was wrong, but I was too young at the time to really put a stop to it. It was all I knew. We were the same age, so by the time I was old enough to realize what was happening, I didn't know how to stop it. Then I eventually just got used to it. In reality, I don't even blame Bruno for snapping the way he did. He had been invisible his entire life. Never went to school, never had friends, never even left the house or been in the sun until he was at least 18. I, I mean, I tried to sneak him food and talk to him whenever I could, but if my mom had ever caught me, I would get in trouble. Hardy cleared her throat, snapping me out of my thoughts and raised an eyebrow expectantly. She was waiting for me to start telling the story I knew they wouldn't believe, and it sounded more like the plot of a horrible Lifetime movie. If I hadn't lived it myself, I wouldn't believe a word of it either. We were never allowed to talk about Bruno. Mama always kept him hidden, but he was never too far away. His room was in the attic, but I think he had managed to learn how to maneuver his way through the crawl spaces in the home, though he could watch us no matter what room we were in. No matter what I was doing, I could always sort of hear him muttering and mumbling in the background. Eventually, I started to associate it with the sound of falling sand, like a white noise machine that was always on. Chapter 2 15 years prior. You had someone in this house when I wasn't here, didn't you? Mama hissed angrily. Her hands closed around my throat in a death grip. I fought and struggled to get out of her grasp, but she was much stronger than me. Anger powered through her muscles like jet fuel. When she was this upset, there was no getting through to her. The corners of my vision began to blur, and at this point, I, I welcomed death. Anything to get out of this hellhole I was in. A quick rush of air surged through my lungs, and I collapsed into the floor, grabbing my throat. I wanted to protest or come up with some kind of lie to save the both of us, but it was no use. She was right. I did have someone in this house when she wasn't home. I mean, it was my 17th birthday, and I just wanted to celebrate for once. When Mama was at work, I snuck over a friend I had made at school, and we sat in the living room eating cake and watching movies. As we watched TV, there had been a noise on the stairs that made us both look up, and my stomach dropped to my knees. There at the top of the stairs stood Bruno. And before I could distract my friend, she let out a scream at the sight of him standing there covered in dirt with wild eyes and a rotten grin. Bruno is my twin brother, but nobody knows he's alive. Well, until now. My mom tells everyone that he died in childbirth, and in reality, Mama gave birth to us at home, but only registered mine with the state. As far as anyone knew, Bruno never existed. Even our other family didn't know. And at first, I had no idea there was anything wrong with this dynamic. I figured that's just what families do, but when I was 13, I snuck out of the house to go to a birthday party for a friend I had met at school. And I, I mean, I wasn't allowed to make friends, but I did anyway, because I mean, how could I not? I'm around these people eight hours a day. At some point, you have conversation. When I got to the party, I realized that my new friends were actually sisters. I've been so fascinated with that idea. A family with two siblings where both were allowed to go out in public. It was completely unheard of to me at the time. How did your mom decide which one of you to let out of the house? I had asked. They both looked at me like I'd grown an extra head mid-conversation, and it was then that I realized that something wasn't really right about my family. I was so embarrassed I never mentioned it again, and eventually they just forgot, or maybe they never cared. When I was 15, I had discovered a diary my mama kept. It detailed how she was mercilessly raped and left for dead on her way home after a night shift at the hospital. The man she was dating at the time was supportive and stuck around until they found out that she had gotten pregnant after the attack. And he disappeared. They found out later that he had actually been the one who had attacked her that night. He was upset that she had wanted to wait until marriage for sex and took it upon himself to get it from her anyway. When he found out that he had impregnated her, he disappeared and changed his name out of fear 
of her finally connecting the dots. She did finally figure it out. And Mama was mean to both because of it. Because we were a product of her trauma. Bruno got the worst of it. Maybe because he looked so much like our rapist daddy and it triggered something in her? I don't know. But she never got help for it. At least, not from what I knew. I had a hard time believing Bruno would still be living in the shadows if she had. Yes, Mama. I had a friend over for my birthday. I choked out. Bruno didn't know anyone was here. He didn't mean to come downstairs. I don't, I don't think my friend will say anything. I made a promise not to. I pleaded with my mama to not be mad. Her eyes flashed angrily. So this person that was in my house saw it? She referred to Bruno as it. Like he was some type of animal or inanimate object. I would get upset every time I heard her refer to him that way. The older we got, the more none of this made sense to me and the more I never wanted to follow her stupid rules. It was always wrong anyway. Bruno, on the other hand, remained docile and cooperative. It broken his spirit so badly that he would do anything she said just for a glimpse of affection. Get it out of my sight. He stood in the middle of the living room, dirty and smelling like rotten flesh. His teeth were getting worse. She would only feed him protein shakes and liquids, and as a result, his teeth had been rotting out of his head. One by one, they fell out. I couldn't imagine the pain he must be in. I walked over to him and gave him a hug. Okay, brother, let's get you cleaned up, I said to him. He leaned into my hug and rested his dirty hair on my shoulder. I breathed through my mouth in order to not gag from the smell. And as I ran his bath, he stood in the middle of the bathroom floor, careful not to touch anything. If he got the walls dirty, Mama would beat him and not give him any food for the day. Thank you, he whispered, when I stood back to let him step into the bathtub. I scooped up his dirty clothes and left to put them in the washing machine. In the moments it took me to load the washer and turn it on, I sent up a silent prayer that my friend would keep her promise and not say anything about what she saw today. The heavy pounding on the door tended to play confirmed that she had not. Unfortunately, that is going to be all we have time for today. Um, you can tune in next week to see what's next or head over to my blog at www.thebookiebabe.com and read rough draft versions of the stories that I will read here on this podcast. They're under my short stories section if you want to find them. Make sure you rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you're using. Only five stars. I'll accept nothing less. Okay, thank you. <laughs> You can leave me a message at Lauren's Library Podcast on Instagram, or you can also find me posting detailed reviews on my other page, the bookie babe underscore. Basically, what I'm saying is if you want to say hello, there are multiple ways to contact me. So take your pick, whatever you choose. But one way or another, I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening. Bye, guys.